It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The House drew a line in the sand when Steve Bannon defied a subpoena to testify before the select committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riots. You can't blow off the United States Congress from your sofa and think you're going to get away with it. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin was among the 229 representatives who voted to hold the former White House chief strategist in criminal contempt of Congress. Bannon is considered a key witness because of his conversations with former President Trump in the weeks leading up to January 6th and the ominous prediction Bannon made on his podcast the day before the riots. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, who teaches at Columbia Law School. Batten's lawyer has written to the committee and said his client will not testify or provide other evidence until the panel reaches an agreement with Trump or a court weighs in on executive privilege. How do you assess that argument, Jennifer? Well, it really looks more like a stalling tactic, in part because the committee wasn't negotiating with Trump. They haven't heard anything from Trump about this. So it really is just a way to say, I'm not cooperating at all. And also, you know, remember, executive privilege, while we don't know the exact parameters of what it covers, because there hasn't been a lot of judicial decisions on that, we do know that you can't just use it as a blanket assertion. So they asked Steve Bannon for all sorts of documents and for testimony about, you know, not just one particular conversation, but a whole series of events. So the notion that you can say executive privilege, I don't have to show up at all, I don't have to send anything in, is ridiculous. It's really kind of a moment-by-moment determination depending on who you're talking to, and what the document is about. So I think those things combined suggest that Bannon is not really making an assertion in good faith here, but instead is kind of asserting some sort of absolute immunity that bars him from having to do anything at all. 
Has a court ever ruled that a conversation with a private citizen can be covered by executive privilege? Not exactly, but the problem is there have been so few cases involving executive privilege, so few fact patterns that have really been spun out and determined by the court that it's not 100% certain that they would exclude executive privilege between a then president and a close advisor, even if that person was a former advisor. You know, we just don't know for sure. I think it makes Bannon's claim to an executive privilege by far the weakest one of all of these witnesses that the select committee is looking to interview, but it's just not 100% decided. The House Speaker sent the matter to the U.S. Attorney for D.C., but the Justice Department doesn't have to prosecute, does it? They do not have to prosecute. That's within the discretion of the Department of Justice. And even though, as you say, it goes to the D.C. U.S. Attorney, you better believe that ultimately that decision is being made by Merrick Garland, the Attorney General. So they will consider you know, the strength of the case, the pros and cons, all of the kind of circumstances surrounding it, and they will make a decision. And they've made clear that it's their decision. You know, Biden was asked by a reporter if he thought that Bannon should be prosecuted, if this should be pressed, and he said yes. And DOJ immediately came out and said, this is our decision. We are not being swayed by anyone else. We're going to make this decision on its legal and factual merits. And so, you know, that's what they will try to do, trying to take into account all of the circumstances surrounding this. Do they have to call a grand jury at least or not even that? They don't have to even do that. And in fact, because the crime that they would charge is a misdemeanor crime, they don't even technically have to use a grand jury. But I expect that they would because it gives it a little bit more of a kind of an official stamp of approval to take it to a grand jury. But they don't have to do anything. There have been a number of instances in the past couple of decades where Congress has sent a criminal referral for prosecution on contempt charges and DOJ has decided not to pursue those. So they certainly can say they don't want to do it. I think they're more likely to do this case than the examples in the past that they have decided not to prosecute, but it's up to them. The last time a person was charged with contempt of Congress was in 1983 under the Reagan administration. Why is it that this is so rarely used? I mean, lately we've seen people defy Congress all the time, sort of dilutes congressional power. It really does. You know, some of it has to do with who's in control of the administration. So there were lots of instances during the Trump administration where witnesses would stonewall, you know, when the Democrats had control of the House and were doing investigations. But there was just no way that the Department of Justice under Trump, Bill Barr's Department of Justice, was ever going to press a criminal case for contempt of Congress against a Trump administration person, right? So some of it is because of kind of what parties are involved and who's in charge. But I also think that it's just the way that it has developed that these things happen. It's really unfortunate that most of the time when Congress wants to speak to someone or wants documents, they negotiate, they reach some sort of concession or agreement about that. And what's happened is when they don't, the clock just kind of runs out. You know, the House is only in session for two years. It changes hands a lot. So it's just become this real problem with Congress trying to conduct its oversight responsibilities. And that's why a lot of Democratic members of the House are calling for legislation so that at minimum, you know, this wouldn't really encourage the DOJ to prosecute necessarily, but at least to get judicial scrutiny 
more quickly, to expedite judicial treatment if Congress goes to the courts to try to get a subpoena enforced, that that would happen more quickly because the running out of the clock is really the biggest problem here. So if the Justice Department decides to prosecute Bannon, could that take months, years? Not years multiple, but probably around a year. I mean, it'll be a federal criminal case, so there are a lot of steps that have to be gone through for due process, et cetera. The judge is not going to be immediately in a position to set a trial date. So a federal criminal case of this complexity, and I don't think this is a particularly complex case, I would say would take around a year. But remember, that doesn't really have anything to do with whether Bannon changes his mind and decides to cooperate or not. The criminal contempt is essentially a punishment for his current refusal to cooperate. So it doesn't force him in any way to honor the subpoena and to cooperate. So so the House Select Committee is still sitting there without its documents and without its witness, even if at the same time DOJ is pursuing a criminal case against Bannon. So if he can just hold out. Absolutely. And even if he's found guilty and sentenced and sent to prison, none of that changes the fact that he hasn't done what it is that they want him to do. Now, there's a separate way to seek contempt, which is a civil contempt order. You can actually put someone in prison to basically coerce them into testifying. They have not chosen to pursue that route. They're going the criminal way. And that way is effectively a punishment for what he's doing now, not a coercive attempt to force him into cooperate. That's interesting. I would think that they would rather force him to cooperate. You know, you have to demonstrate that there is a likelihood that you'll get what you're after, that there's a likelihood that if you put the person in prison in order to coerce them to testify, that they will do so. And so I don't know why it is that they haven't pursued that avenue against Steve Bannon. I think maybe they want the, I don't know if you call it the cover, but they want the kind of stamp of approval of a grand jury indicting him, it being in front of the courts where he gets his due process. You know, I think maybe they feel like putting someone like Steve Bannon so close to former President Trump in prison to force him into testifying would be a step further than they're looking to go right now. So let's turn now to another case of executive privilege. Trump is trying to stop the archives from releasing his papers Explain his claim of executive privilege here. So he's trying to stop the National Archives from handing over sets of materials involving communications around what happened on January 6th, effectively. So, you know, they collect these communications, email communications and the like, you know, visitor logs from the White House on important days, et cetera. And he doesn't want any of that to become known to the public or to the select committee claiming that it would violate his executive privilege, which effectively protects communications among the president and his close aides in the executive branch about matters of presidential importance. So the president and his aides are talking about, you know, should we take a military action or should we do this national security thing? Those are things that the courts feel like they want protected. You know, they don't want a president to be worried when he's talking to his advisors that that information might someday come out. So that's effectively the executive privilege, but it doesn't cover everything. You know, it doesn't cover, for example, conversations between him and people who are not his aides. And it doesn't cover things that are not kind of within the core of a president's authority and a president's job. So it is limited. And so the fact that he wants 
to withhold things like the visitor log, for example. That's not going to fly because there's no reason that that would be subject to an executive privilege. Executive privilege really is about the content of communication. So here you have a former president saying he wants to exert executive privilege and the current president saying he doesn't want to exert executive privilege here. Are there cases where former versus present are weighed and who has the privilege? So there are, back when this was being litigated in relation to former President Nixon, the Supreme Court did talk about this issue. Usually the current president has the privilege, has the right to either waive or assert the privilege because it's viewed to be an institutional thing, right? You want to protect the presidency and the president, no matter who it is at the time, their ability to consult freely with their close advisors. So the current president holds that privilege. Now, the Supreme Court did say that in theory, they could see a former president having an interest in and ability to assert the privilege, but where the current president then disagrees and doesn't want to assert the privilege, the current president's assertion would have more weight, although they didn't discount the possibility that you could have a scenario where a former president's assertion might be granted. But that hasn't been done. In the Nixon case, Nixon wanted the privilege, current president did not want the privilege, and ultimately they ruled that there was no privilege. But they did kind of hold out that possible hope that in theory there could be a case like that at some point. So it's not 100% certain. Does it make a difference that it's an investigation into a possible abuse of power by the former president, you know, if he really was encouraging the January 6th rioters? You know, I think it does. The problem is it's hard to know what the communications are about until you know what the communications are. But yes, I mean, that theory holds. And that was another one of the the findings um, of the Supreme Court in the Nixon case. When you're talking about either criminal behavior or behavior that just is not within the president's authority, then you're not supposed to have executive privilege over those kinds of communications. So in a case where the president, is, you say, is abusing his authority, is trying to hold on to power to overturn an election, you know, whether or not those are technically crimes pursuant to the federal criminal code, you wouldn't think that an assertion of executive privilege would be appropriate there. And indeed, that's more or less what President Biden has said. This was an extraordinary circumstance, really an, an undercutting of our democracy. And so We need to know what happened here. You know, this is not your run-of-the-mill, are we going to bomb this country? Are we going to do this sort of thing that is within the heartland of what you would want, that kind of confidentiality with your advisors? This is something nefarious. This is something improper. And so we need to know what happened. So I, I think you're right to say that that also factors into the legitimacy of executive privilege. What was it about? Is it about something you want protected, or is it about something that you feel, quite to the contrary, needs to see the light of day? Trump also claims the committee subpoena is invalid because the committee has no power of investigation. That was an argument he made, his lawyers made, during some other lawsuits during Trump's presidency. Uh, It will not carry the day, for sure. I mean, they don't investigate in the way that law enforcement investigates, but they do investigate in connection with their legislative powers. And 
In fact, I think the House is very interested in thinking about ways that they can establish some guardrails to avoid this sort of thing in the future. For example, you know, they're looking at this question of stonewalling and whether they want to try to pass legislation that requires expedited handling in courts of cases involving congressional subpoenas. They may want to establish legislation around, you know, who has power to bring in the National Guard if there is some sort of problem at the Capitol like happened on January 6th. So they do need some sort of legislative purpose when they are doing this kind of thing, but that's easy to find. You know, they, they can always say they're looking to legislate. And in fact, in this case, they really are. They really are looking for ways to avoid what happened here uh, and to do that through passing laws. So Trump seems to be using the courts as he always has to run out the clock perhaps until a change in leadership of the House during the midterms. Can this be done expeditiously? Will the courts do this fast, or is it impossible? Well, they can do it fast. I mean, courts can work quickly. They just don't always do that. And, you know, you won't have a final determination, like on Trump's lawsuit about the contours of executive privilege. We won't know the final word until and unless this gets all the way to the Supreme Court, frankly, for their ruling on it. But that doesn't mean that things can't happen. I mean, Steve Bannon may be able to run out the clock. If he refuses to cooperate, even if he's convicted and sentenced to prison, as I said, he doesn't have to cooperate. So he may be able to run out the clock. But the select committee can continue their work and seek information that is clearly not subject to executive privilege. And I think that there is enough of that kind of information that they will get a fairly full picture of what happened on January 6th, as long as they press for the information that is about this event that should not be protected by the privilege, then I think they can can get what they need. But they do need to keep pushing to move quickly and to act aggressively Or, you know, you're right, the the tick, tick, ticking of the clock will eventually catch up with them. The National Archives told Trump it will turn over the records to Congress on November 12th unless a court steps in. So if the judge doesn't issue an injunction and if the appellate court doesn't step in, then his concerns will be ignored and they'll turn over the papers? That's right. This is kind of the flip side of what happened pretty frequently during the Trump administration. You know, you need an injunction to to stop whatever the action is. So here he needs an injunction to stop the National Archives from turning over the information. And he can only get one, by the way, according to the legal standards of injunctions, if he can prove that he has a likelihood of success on the merits. Thanks, Jennifer. That's former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. 
That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It's the first prosecution related to the two 737 MAX crashes that killed 346 people in 2018. Boeing's former chief test pilot, Mark Forkner, has been charged with deceiving federal regulators about the flight control system that was later linked to both tragedies. After Forkner pleaded not guilty, his attorney David Gerger said his client did not lie and did not cause the crashes. Everyone who was affected by this tragedy deserved a search for the truth, not a search for a scapegoat. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Mark Lytle, a partner at Nixon Peabody. Tell us about the charges that Forkner is facing. The charges are really twofold. One is charges related to false statements and intent to defraud regarding false writings or certifications, records regarding an aircraft part. And that's a statute that's not normally used, but it's basically titled fraud involving aircraft parts in interstate commerce. That's counts one through two. Counts three through six are wire fraud counts. Wire fraud is an allegation that someone had a scheme, an artifice to defraud, and obtained money and property by false and fraudulent pretenses. And that's the whole indictment. It's a six-count indictment. There's also a forfeiture notice where they try to collect any uh, money that was gained as a result of this you know, alleged crime or traceable to those offenses. Mark, prosecutors have a trail of what seems like incriminating emails from Forkner complaining about the Mac software system, the MCAS, that it was, quote, designed by clowns who in turn are supervised by monkeys and bragging about using Jedi mind tricks on regulators. Will those be an important part of the case against him? Well, it depends. You know, certainly the case is an example that continues to show up in the modern era with email and electronic communications where people sort of just say what's on their mind and don't think about what they're saying. So certainly some of those statements by Fortner are going to be embarrassing. I would expect that the government would try to use those to the extent that they put knowledge in Fortner's head about the MCAS failure or the MCAS simulation that he learned about. I expect that defense attorneys would try to limit that because it might be prejudicial or not relevant really to the charges. In one, he says, I basically lied to the regulators unknowingly. Does that cut for him or against him? It cuts both ways. The way it cuts against him is it's his statement acknowledging that he's received this new disclosure internally about where the MCAS operates and what circumstances, which is significantly broader than what Boeing had previously known and or disclosed to the FAA. 
So it goes against him in that way. It sets the marker where he's saying he knew about this. And it sets the stage for future allegations that later on he didn't tell the FAA about it. It goes for him because this word that he added unknowingly is sort of his statement that like, wow, I've had all these conversations with the FAA and they told me all this stuff internally about the MCAS, but now it's different. And now they're going to say, I lied. I didn't lie. You know, I just didn't know about it. The email about Jedi mind tricking regulators was to an FAA official. Does that seem to suggest that the FAA knew or should have known about changes to the MCAS? It wasn't like the FAA was totally in the dark here. Yeah, this is a challenging indictment for the government to bring on a number of levels. But clearly, before any of these charges came out, obviously during the scope of the FAA's investigations of those two crashes and how they occurred, clearly there were a lot of criticism of the FAA's certification process, that they weren't hands-on that they weren't involved in certifying aircraft enough, that as a regulator, they should have been much more involved. This Jedi mind statement puts a number of people in the FAA on notice that they should have looked harder at this. They should have taken this and said, wait, what do we got here? So clearly, when Forkner goes on trial, there's going to be a lot of effort by his attorneys, I would expect, to actually put the FAA on trial. Forkner is a mid-level employee. It's kind of hard to imagine that all this happened solely because of his actions or inactions. That's right. That's one of the real shortcomings of trying to charge one person in an environment where when you look at the indictment itself, there's some emails by him where he's worried that he's going to cost Boeing millions of dollars. And clearly, there's an environment there where you've got an employee who's worried about that, and maybe that's infringing his judgment. But more to the legal point, these wire fraud counts and this FAA fraud count, a critical element to these charges are that Forkner intended to defraud somebody of money or property. That's going to be really difficult. It's clear that he lied, and it's clear that he made some false statements and omissions, mostly omissions. But to say that he wanted to sort of make money through those lies, it looks apparently that he's a mid-level employee who's worried about his reputation or worried about a reputation that results in people saying he cost the company money. And that's not enough to say he intended to defraud airline customers of Boeing. What are the other elements that prosecutors have to prove? For example, is materiality an element? It is. Materiality is an element in every fraud case, and they're going to have to show that but for these false statements, things would have been different. It's really hard to say because all of the statements in the indictment that allege Forkner committed fraud, they're really about omission. They describe a couple of different interactions that Forkner had with the FAA after he learned about the MCAS problems where he didn't disclose it. And what is the context of those conversations? It's really rare to charge a case just based on omissions. Usually you're looking for affirmative false statements, and omissions make it difficult to prove that somebody had a material false statement, too. I want to talk about Boeing's settlement with the Justice Department, which didn't cite Faulkner by name. How will that play, or will it play, into his case? You know, I haven't been able to review the settlement that much, but it's certainly going to play a role. I think generally for a defense uh, of an individual to have a company, uh, Orkner certainly likely to blame Boeing and the pressures he received internally um, 
as he noted in some of his emails, uh, that that he had pressure to to not cost the company money. And the defense attorney is going to, you know, maybe not legally have a basis to to bring Boeing into the matter, but it's certainly going to be something that's going to be in the background of the trial about how did someone, how did this large company just have one person end up being charged criminally? And how did, you know, what were the terms of Boeing's admissions? Did Boeing make any admissions in that settlement? Uh, there's certainly their payment of money. Um, is it fair, the defense attorney might raise, is it fair that Boeing doesn't receive criminal charges um, when uh, a mid-level employee does for what is, what looks like, uh, appears to be an institution, institutional breakdown? So will the jury have to believe that he was a rogue employee who was carrying this out by himself, or can they believe others were at fault as well and still find him guilty? The jury can can believe that others were at fault as well and still find him guilty. It just goes to um, the sense of, uh, I think, the arguments that the defense attorneys are likely to make are that the, the jury, they'll appeal to the jury's sense of fairness. And a jury can, you know, jury can nullify a verdict for any reason. Now, there's, they get instructions from the court to follow the instructions and apply the elements of, of each charge to the facts proven at the trial. But if the jury gets the sense that there's not fairness here, uh, it could really go the wrong way for the government. You're a former federal prosecutor. Would you rather be the prosecution or the defense? Which side do you think has a stronger case? Well, you know, uh, this this would be a tough one because, you know, in this case, the crashes were so tragic. The loss of life um, unnecessarily occurred. And Clearly, Forkner had knowledge of this problem that could have prevented those crashes. Uh, but it's clear that many other people uh, knew or should have known about this. And the defense are going to make a, a real big part of this case about the FAA. And those FAA agents are going to have to testify at trial, and they're going to be, you know, scorched on cross-examination. And it's it's likely, I would think, Forkner uh, could be convicted, uh, even if others who weren't charged were were not charged were involved were not charged in the case. But I think that the jury it's going to be tough for the jury, you know, to go forward uh, if if the defense is able to get into their argument. The fact that Forkner is kind of a scapegoat. Is there a possible? Well, there's always a possibility of a plea. Do you think that the prosecutors might be looking to flip him? Uh, they might. This was a, but this was a pretty extensive uh, investigation. And when the company entered into the settlement, and again, I haven't read the terms of the Boeing settlement, it would appear that Boeing did a pretty extensive internal investigation and cooperated with the government um, extensively. So I would think that I would think that they have all the information that this is probably going to be the only charge coming out of it. Really? Because even Peter DeFazio, the Democrat from Oregon, said senior leaders throughout Boeing are responsible for the culture of concealment that ultimately led to the 737 MAX crashes. He's saying this shouldn't be the only indictment. I think he's right. I think it shouldn't be the only indictment. But from reading the fact that, you know, Boeing, that 
that Boeing was allowed to settle, and that Boeing's, um, I would expect Boeing would have done a really thorough internal investigation into their compliance, and that they would have done extent to be allowed to settle like this, they would have extensively cooperated with the government. So my expectation, and based on my experience, the charges that came out now would have been uh, inclusive of of all of the people they felt they could make a charge and had a reasonable likelihood of conviction at trial. Things could change, of course, and Forkner maybe could provide conversations that weren't recorded, you know, an email or something that the government doesn't have. So, of course, that could always happen. But I'm surprised it's only Forkner, but I, I would also be surprised if other people were charged in this case. What kind of sentence is he looking at? You know, the sentencing guidelines are with fraud cases are triggered uh, and tied to what the loss amount was to the victim of the crime. Um, but if he gets convicted and they're at sentencing, the defense and the prosecution are going to have a lot of sparring over, um, you know, whether whether Forkner is accountable for the loss uh, that uh, that these airlines suffered uh, as a result of the crashes, as a result of their liability to passengers. Uh, and, you know, that that also that Boeing settlement, $2.5 billion, um, you know, clearly Boeing is providing that amount. And I think that, you know, he's going to, Fortner would argue after if he got convicted at sentencing, that he wasn't responsible for these losses. He would argue for a much lower sentence than maybe the guidelines, in which the guidelines are tied to the loss amount. Otherwise, if it's the whole amount, he's going he's gonna to have very high guidelines, probably uh, up to life in prison. I don't expect a judge to give him that amount of time. I think a judge would probably look at this and find he was a mid-level employee. But there certainly was a lot of loss of life. And, um, you know, the number of people who died in these crashes is, you know, really horrific. So I, I would expect a significant sentence, maybe between five and ten years. I think there's one thing that sure. um, I would add, and, and that is like there are significant appellate issues in this case, and it has to it has first starts with the wire fraud statute, and if you look at the history of the cases, there have been significant limitations of the wire fraud statute um, by the Supreme Court, um, and the most recent one, which people are familiar with, is the Bridgegate case where uh, some employees of uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie tried to um, maneuver uh, the Port Authority uh, lanes uh, to narrow to get back at a, at a local mayor who wasn't supporting of, of Governor Christie's campaign. Um, the Supreme Court threw those wire, fraud scheme, those wire fraud convictions out because the key words in the wire fraud statute are a scheme or artist to deprive someone of money or property, money or property. Um, and they allege that Forkner um, defrauded the airlines, the customers of Boeing, of money or property. And, you know, in this case, it's going to be hard to say what, how did Faulkner, how did Forkner intend to defraud those airlines? It's really kind of hard to say that when it's pretty clear from his emails he was worried about his personal reputation within the company, but it's really going to be hard for the government to prove that Forkner really wanted to rip off 
customers of Boeing. Um, and that's where the rub is in the case, and that's where the rub will be on appeal. Um, and, you know, with regard to regulatory cases or licenses, the, the courts have, there's a particular case in the Fifth Circuit in Louisiana where someone was alleged to have um, um, defrauded uh, a license for casino, uh, the, the, the regulator for casinos, and, and defrauded them into issuing a, a license. And the Supreme Court, the, the courts in Louisiana, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, ruled that a license or regulatory function is not property under the wire fraud statute. So there are significant appellate issues at play in this indictment. And I would expect there'd be factual arguments over whether or not Forkner really intended to defraud the customers of, uh, of Boeing. Thanks, Mark. That's Mark Lytle of Nixon Peabody. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.